I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me on the show. I'm so happy to be with you, Kristen. Now, I love this because your book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, uh, because my life keeps getting better and better as I near 50, and I'm 49. I just turned 49 in January of this year, so I'm. Uh, I loved when I saw this. I went, "Oh, good. Let's let's explore how much better it's going to keep getting the closer I get to 50 and beyond." <laughs> yeah, my life was great before 50 and after 50, but I didn't feel good about my life through my 40s, and that's why I wrote a book about it to try to understand that weird gap between my emotional state and reality. But yeah, after 50, they came into alignment and it's been uphill, up, I mean, upward good ever since. That's fantastic. So for our listeners that, you know, haven't read the book, um, can you give a little bit of um, some insight, not, not to give away the whole thing, because we definitely want them to, um, you know, to go get it. But that period in your 40s where, because I, I had the same thing, it was such a, so much drag. learning. Yeah, it's so many just really powerful things happened in my 40s that um, were life-changing and certainly have made me grab onto the happiness piece much better. But uh, I'll be glad to be done with the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> so here are the headlines. We can, we can dig in wherever you want. But the headline is that most of what most people think they know about happiness and age is wrong, and what, what we don't know turns out to hurt us. We kind of expect that emotionally as well as socially and physically, um, midlife, the 40s and thereabouts, early 50s, will be the peak of life, and then it's going to go downhill after that. And if we're not doing great in midlife, then we're probably having a midlife crisis. Well, there's a transformation going on just in the last 10 or so years in knowledge of the way age and happiness interact. And it's kind of the opposite of that. Midlife is a time when other things being equal, it gets harder, not easier to feel grateful and satisfied. And this doesn't necessarily have to do with your life at all. It's even found in chimps and orangutans. It seems to be to some extent wired in. Mm. Um, 
and but people don't expect it. So they think I must be having some kind of crisis if they hit emotional turmoil at midlife. They don't know what's going on. That happened to me. It hit me really hard. I thought there's something wrong with me. Well, it turns out there was something right with me. Um, this is a transitional phase. There's lots you can do about it. But the main thing to do is know that it's healthy and normal and that contrary to what most people believe, um, the it gets easier and easier, not harder and harder to be happy after 50 right through the, the end of life. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, 40s were certainly not fun, but I'm grateful that I went through all the things that I, I went through because I feel like the uh, the seed was cracked open so many times that, you know, now I'm able to flower and I know how to water myself in order to flower. That's a great way to put it. That's a great metaphor. Yeah. I'll steal that. (laughs) Please do. Yeah, because I I didn't know how to water myself certainly before. And uh, I needed those big, you know, crises to to happen. Not that I hadn't had crises before, but uh, a different kind of a way that I had them in my 40s. I felt like I was awake to see what was going on. Whereas before my forties, the things would happen and I just plowed through them as best as I could, but I couldn't really gain much insight into why and these things went on until I was in my forties. Yeah. In my case, I didn't really get insight until my fifties and I got a lot of it actually by researching this book. Mm. I thought there was something wrong with me because all these great things were happening to me. When I was 45, I won the biggest award in magazine journalism. I'm a, I'm a professional journalist. I write books and articles for places like Atlantic. And I won the National Magazine Award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for magazines. And that mm-hmm. finally made me feel satisfied with my accomplishments for about 10 days. And then right back came this weird, irrational feeling. I was wasting my life. I was trapped. I needed to turn it to just do something totally different. This, these very disruptive voices in my head, which made no sense. I mean, I knew I had a great life. So that's when I started really getting worried. And then a few years later, just because I work at Brookings, where people study this kind of thing, I stumbled into this new literature. It's called the U-shaped well-being curve. It's found in humans, in societies around the world, rich and poor. It's found in chimps and orangutans. And it's what it sounds like. As you age from early 20s to midlife, um, it gets harder to be happy. And there's a long sort of low point in the 40s, early 50s. And then the forces turn around again. And it gets easier and easier and easier to be happy. And there's lots of different ideas for why that may be happening, but it's totally normal. There's nothing wrong with me. And if I had known that, I would not have panicked. I would not have been alarmed. I wouldn't have thought I'll never be happy again, right. all of which made it much worse. Well, luckily, I'm I'm hitting it early, I think, because uh, about come about 49. I mean, individual mileage will vary. It's really important to say that. We're talking about big data, statistics, mm-hmm. averages. Not everyone hits this problem. But the turnaround, the bottom of the curve, when it starts going up again in the U.S., U.K., other Western countries, tends to be between 45 and 55. I started noticing a difference right around 50 when actually a lot of bad things did happen to me, but I felt my resilience 
in gratitude increasing. And you're so you're you know you're right on target actually right statistically. Good. Yeah. And I think, you know, being a, a mental health network as, as we are, we've got a lot of podcasters on this network, all, all talking about um, mental health and addiction and so on. And so, you know, a lot of us come from uh, scoring high on the childhood adverse effects test and stuff. So our, our journey to figuring out how to be happy um, comes with a lot of struggle. I've noticed with, with a lot of us that we're you know, hitting that late forties place where we're like, Oh man, yeah, that, that stuff was awful. But the ability to be grateful for what you overcame and the resiliency and what you, you know, have now and the things that you sweat about before and had trauma around before those are all necessary, but just all of that makes it so much easier and peaceful to be so grateful because you have such contrast. Yeah, that helps. And you know what also really helps mm. is a lot of people have the idea that aging is a process of decline and despair right. and depression and decrepitude and death, all the bad Ds. Well, it's not. And it's actually the opposite is true. For most people, the emotional peak of life is not until their 60s or 70s. Mm. And so people get to 50, they think, well, the best years are behind me and this isn't great, so it's only going to get worse. So then they get pessimistic. Right. about their future as well as being disappointed in their past. And knowing this has really turned around my perspective because, you know, I used to, like everyone, I used to worry about, you know, the aging process. I've only got one more birthday between now and 60. Now I can't wait to be 60. I've interviewed dozens of people for my book. I've surveyed hundreds of people. There's vast amounts of literature on this. And the, the conclusion is overwhelming. Aging is something to look forward to. Yes. So that's really had an impact on me. How, you know, there's so much, I mean, in our society that is just <laughs> like Sisyphus pushing a rock up a hill in relation to accepting aging. So how, what, how do you feel like you can and other people can try to change this ridiculous model that would make everybody miserable if we followed what society tells you about aging? Well, <laughs> in some <laughs> cases, we write books about it. And right. then when people say, come be on the Mental Health Network podcast, we say, heck yes. <laughs> these are the people, these are the folks. There are lots of actually, I've done more podcasts and TV or radio put together. And I just feel like, uh, writing and talking about this as much as I possibly can helps me feel like I'm contributing a little bit to the mental health of society. And right. and if others do the same, and they are, Ashton Applewhite and, of course, AARP, which is a huge player in this field, more and more people are starting to understand that our social story about aging is the opposite of reality, and they're starting to talk about that. And I think, you know, a decade or two, it'll it'll be sinking in. I hope. I don't know. I what hope. do you think? Is it hopeless? No, 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 no. I don't think it's hopeless. I, I think that um, anytime that there's revenue tied to having extremely thin women as models, we're becoming much more of a socially aware and probably due to social media, which has its negative drawbacks as well. But we're just, yeah. we, we have more of a voice to say what we don't like um, which is good and bad. Um, but uh, I think because of that, 
people will start saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, these advertisements bother me. And so they need to change. So the people have a, a bigger platform to voice their dissatisfaction with things now. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, of course, the baby boomers are now in their 60s. And mm -hmm. They're the most culturally influential generation ever. There's huge numbers of them, and they punch, punch above their weight. And and they're not planning to go into quiet retirement, you know, yeah. chewing their cud out in the field until they drop dead. They're going to stay active and engaged, and I think they're going to help change a lot of these these perceptions. And then you know maybe a straw in the wind wouldn't want to make too much of it, but it's interesting that we saw a couple years ago the first Hollywood movie about the new picture of aging. It was called The Intern. Yeah. Robert De Niro plays a 60-something yep. guy who's who's in the workplace mentoring, making younger people more productive. Um, that's true. That is a real story. That is what older people can and often do do in the workplace. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it's just one movie, but I don't think we would have seen it 10 or 15 years ago. No, we certainly wouldn't have. I, I loved that. And I also love, we see different people in, in positions of, you know, around politics and so on, which we won't get into, but I see, okay, 72, 73, 74. And that's just, it's a lot less. Oh, <gasps> 72. Oh my gosh. that They're ready to drop dead. You know, that kind of thing. It's more like, oh yeah, there's 72. Okay. Then they're still working and have no plans on retiring anytime soon. It's much, that is much more accepted now than like you said, it was, you know, 10 years ago ago it was like oh man you've aged out already what do you what your old daughter or what are you still doing poking around in business or politics yeah. or whatever and that's exactly. just not that's not the case yeah, you know? I, <laughs> I was amazed to find that um, according to the Kaufman Foundation there are more startups by people in their uh, in late midlife I think it's 45 to 55 so I'll have to go look right. at the numbers but there are more startups for people in that stage of life than there are for people in their 20s and early 30s. The whole idea that people lose their creativity as they age, that's not right. They mm. don't become demented um, generally. They don't lose productivity. Uh, and they become better, actually, at making people around them productive because they've got a lot of experience and social wisdom. So they're good at navigating conflicts and figuring stuff out. So people are becoming more aware of that, and employers are starting to create pathways for people in late adulthood who, you know, they don't want to come in and, and punch in and punch out necessarily. They want kind of meaningful jobs that have to do with mentoring and, right. and giving back, which is the best thing about this period of life. We're getting right now in the United States for all the complaining that we do, we are getting the single, I would say the single number one greatest gift in the entire history of the human species in the form of we've got 10 or 15 additional years of, of healthy life in the most satisfying pro-social part of life. Mm. I mean, what would earlier generations have given to have this whole new stage of life? Kind right. of, there's no name for it yet. Some people call it encore adulthood because it's between traditional middle age and traditional old age. Um, yeah. And people people want to give back at this point. And that's, I mean, this is a fantastic social resource as well as a personal gift. I, I love the number of people that come to me and, you know, say, I really want to be mentored by you. I take that as a huge compliment. 
you know, yeah. if I can, if I can yeah. help a young, young woman start, you know, stay, give the advice that I didn't have anybody to go to when I started at 27, uh, in 1990 something or other, <laughs> uh, that would have been really great. Cause I didn't have, I didn't have women to go to that were entrepreneurs. Then I had, uh, I was a consultant and I had so many clients. I mean, I was in and out of thousands of businesses. And at that time, I think there were maybe five females that owned their own companies at that time. Everybody else was male. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's a that's a big change. Um, yeah. And another change I hope for. There's a wonderful new book out by Mark Friedman, who's the president and found core, founder of the Encore Network, um, Encore.org, and. That's a network of lots of nonprofits and companies and universities that are working in this space around late adulthood and creating these all these new pathways and opportunities. But his book is called How to Live Forever, and it's about one of the craziest things we do in modern society and one of the most unnatural things we do, which is separate the olders from the youngers. Right. Um, that makes no sense. It's historically and socially wrong, and of course in our in our ancestral situations, grandparents and grandkids were together. I mean, most of the time. That's how we're that's how we're built. And so there's a whole movement now to to put olders and youngers back together again. And that's fantastically rewarding for both. So there's you know I'm very bullish on the future. I think there's there's a lot of movement in the right direction, even though there's a long way to go. Right. What do you you know What are your findings on people just retirement isn't even a word that is used often anymore. Uh, that retirement does not mean what it used to mean. It doesn't mean that you stop working. Maybe you launch a whole new enterprise. It can mean so many things, but it isn't the traditional thing we think of with retirement and the rates of things like Alzheimer's, depression, and so on in what we would call seniors, quote unquote, that do stay working, do stay active long past what we would typically say is, oh, 65 is when you retire. Well, yeah, there's uh, Friedman's written very well about this, but it's it's kind of interesting. The whole idea of retirement is a very new idea. It comes along pretty much after World War II when people start living longer and they start getting social security checks. So now they have resources. And, and so um, at the time when that happens, most people start getting social security age 65. Well, they don't live much longer than that. So they have a few years and they're, the idea is you'll, you'll retire, you'll spend it on the golf course. And then they set up retirement communities. And this is a vision of where your retirement is like play, but for old people. So there won't be any young people around and you won't really have to do anything all day. <laughs> well, that concept comes along as recently as the late 50s, early 60s, and it's already outlived its usefulness for all, all the reasons you're talking about. Um, it's not what people want when they can expect to live and be healthy until well into their 80s. Eventually, not too long, it's going to be 100-year lives are going to be quite standard. Right. People will be healthy for most of that. So what we need to adjust to is this concept of retirement as going away and doing nothing is not going to work emotionally or fiscally. And what it's going to be is a kind of relaunch. It'll happen around midlife, which is a time, as you know, when our values begin to change. We get less right. interested in ambition 
and more interested in social connection and reinvesting. So our challenge as a society is to get rid of that old template that at 65, you draw social security, you do nothing, and you die. Mm-hmm. And replace that with a template that's already starting to emerge of repurposing in late adulthood for an, a whole new stage of life. And the potential for that, for ourselves as individuals, for society, for our kids, it, I mean, it's a gold mine. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, as somebody asked me the other day, because I just, I had a podcast forever, forever, in terms of internet years, it's forever. But <laughs> I started a podcast. I like that concept, inter- internet years. That's, <laughs> yeah. It's it, like it donkey be, years in reverse. Right. They used to be 90 days. Now they're like five, you know, five days. Yeah, that's excellent. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I was podcasting when people were like, what's a podcast? And, uh, and then, you know, created this network and, and it's fantastic. And I can't see myself ever wanting to do anything different. I, I love it. There's so many things that we can do with it. And someone asked me the other day, well, you know, when are you, you know, when you get to like 65, you're going to want to sell it. And, and I was like, no, are they going to, I'm going to be on the air until I, fall over and they carry me out. I mean, why, why wouldn't I be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or even if you are doing something different from this particular podcast, you'll be doing something and it'll yes. be doing, it'll be something creative. Yeah. So you, you're again, you're kind of a textbook study in um, how to repurpose, find new value in midlife, um, move to this next stage. Um, Yeah. And I think too, you know, when you think about usually it's okay, well, then you start having grandchildren and the typical, you know, old fashioned view as well, then you focus all your attention on your grandchildren, like your life just stops and it becomes all about your grandchildren. And the way I look at that is, um, no, that's not going to happen. I will be ecstatic if my son ever has children. I will be a very active grandmother that is a part of their lives, but I will carve out time for grandchildren. And I think that's a good thing to show, you know, your grandkids. (laughs) Yeah. Well, grandparenthood, grandparents are not who they used to be. Yeah. When I was a kid, I, for, for different reasons, I barely knew my grandparents, but the one thing I knew about them is they were really, really old and they acted old and they were, either out of the workforce or on their way out of the workforce. That is grandparents now are, you know, they're, they've got 20 years to go with their careers and they're, you know, they're, they're nowhere near retirement if they've got young kids. So this is, this is a new context. And and that's why that, that promise is so great. Getting this whole additional period in life of, you know, grandparenthood doesn't mean you're about to die. Right. It means the opposite. Right, exactly. My grandmother was volunteering and, you know, working with disabled children well, well on up into her, you know, 70s and 80s. So uh, that I'm I'm glad I had that model. And she was one of the few, you know, (laughs) doing that. That was pretty rare. Incidentally, um, it's worth mentioning that there seems to be a pretty deep connection between grandparenthood and the U-shaped life satisfaction curve, which mm. I refer to. Now, that might seem funny. What would grandparenthood have to do with the fact that it's 
harder to be happy and grateful in middle age, other things being equal. Well, we don't really know for sure why this U-shaped curve occurs. There are people working to figure that out. But, or why people get happier as they get older. But here's what seems to be the connection. What makes us happy, life satisfaction does not typically come from social achievement and competition, like ambition. The things we focus on when we're in our 20s and 30s, you know, climbing up the status ladder, ticking off the boxes for getting the marriage, getting the kids, getting the career, getting the house, getting the status, all those things, they're important. But it turns out that the goalposts move when we're ambitious. Because, you know, ambition, the whole definition of ambition is don't stop, keep wanting more. As we age into our 50s and 60s, our values tend to shift away from ambition toward connection. We want to invest more right. in our communities and in the people and pursuits that, that are most meaningful to us. And we want to give back. And that seems to be a natural tendency. Well, why would that happen? It turns out there are only, depending how you define it, three or four species on the entire planet where the people stick around for a long time after they lose their fertility. I mean, if you think about it, an unfertile animal is just, from evolution's point of view, a dead body walking around consuming right. food. So other species just die when they lose fertility. Um, human females, you know, can be 30, 40 years. Yep. Well, it turns out that in, this, in the other species that have this phenomenon, orca whales, which have been studied, having the grandparents around makes the children and the grandchildren do better. In fact, it turns out to be good for the whole pod. But it turns out that there seems to be some value in the wisdom of these elders and in their ability to help navigate social conflicts and weave other people mm -hmm. together. And that may account for why we're around in this period of life and also why we have this emotional upswing because connecting to people is really good for your emotional well-being. It's way better than achievement and Absolutely. success. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so what, what were they? There's orcas, humans, and what are the others? You know, I, I'm terrible with, with short-term memory, but I can go look it up. I have my computer right here. It's another species of whale, though. It's another aquatic mammal. Um, so, but yeah, so there's evidence, there's suggestion that grandparents are the key to the whole puzzle, actually. That's phenomenal. Yay. Well, I can't. My son's 29. I'm patiently. I'm not really ready quite yet because I'm still, I've just walked into the third year of this new startup, but of this network, but uh you know, about four years, I'll be, I'll be ready, but it's not my timetable. It's his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, fantastic. Tell our, um, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, Jonathan. And I know your book is the happiness curve people can find on Amazon, but where can they find out more about you? Well, I have two websites. One is a book website. It's called happinesscurvebook.com. And I've got a little blog up there where I respond to letters and stuff. I've got some really, really interesting mail from people who read the book and reflect on their own lives or have questions and comments. Um, and I'd be, of course, 
remiss from my publisher's point of view if I didn't mention you could order also order the book through the website. And I've got a personal website, jonathanrausch.com, and there I uh, I post my writings and you know books and speeches and other things that, that I'm up to. So those are the two big places to find me. I have a Twitter account. I don't use it really very much. Same with Facebook. But you can mm-hmm. find me on Twitter at J-O-N underscore R-A-U-C-H. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Larry Rifkin with America Trends is the one who said you need to interview him. So thanks, Larry. For A shout out to Larry for that. Hey, well, thank you, Larry. And also thank you. It was great to be on the show. You're welcome. And thank you to our listeners. Get ready for that happiness curve on Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial.